Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Morning, everybody. Here we are, Vain Thoughts 101, Part 4. And uh, so we're going to wrap everything up in a nice, neat little bow today. But that nice, neat little bow to y'all is probably going to look like a ball of yarn that a cat's gotten a hold of. Because this is, should be part of an ongoing conversation in our own minds about worldviews and uh, what are we seeing and how that affects us or how we interact with that as believers. And of course, you got to know what you're looking at before you can figure out how you're going to deal with it. And that's been kind of the goal of this whole four-part series that has galloped through thousands of years of human thought. And I do mean gallop, like we skipped lots of stuff. There was, I wanted to put romantic, the romantic movement in there, specifically dealing with the music and the poetry so you could get an idea of you know, the background for Kant and stuff, and there just wasn't any way to do that, so. We'd need a whole semester. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, yes you would. Meeting regularly, not just on Sundays. And I don't think anybody wants to commit to that, because, you know, there's, you know, football, baseball. And that's just with your kids, you know, some of you just watch it for fun, anyway, yeah. Let's go ahead and I'll pray and we'll start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for the sunshine, which I don't know, just me, but it feels like it's been a while since we saw any. I thank you for these folks who, many of whom have come regularly and listened to this and managed not to lose their minds. And we thank you for that because uh, you are our center, you are our logos, you are the one by whom we know what we know and you are the measure, the yardstick as it were for, well, you should be the yardstick for our thoughts and our minds, but very often we leave you standing in the corner. But Lord, you keep coming up over and over again and we thank you that the heavens declare your glory and that the firmament shows your handiwork and that we can look to the sun, the moon, the stars, spring according to the groundhog just around the corner. And we thank you that we can see your work evident in our lives when we stop and meditate or even just stop and pause for breath and put our hectic, frenetic lifestyles to one side and just... Uh, gaze upon you. So we pray that as we look to this stuff today, these philosophies, that you would give us insight, you would give us uh, an extra measure of wisdom, so that we can understand that we actually do see these things all around us day in and day out in our everyday lives, and uh, it's out there with the people that we're trying to reach. And sometimes it's a barrier and we have to knock it down so they can see things better. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so where have we been? Well, we're gonna, we're gonna review, because we should always begin with review. Y'all remember the sophists? They're the ones that we kicked this off with. Um, 
I am my own morality. I use words to get what I want, and the gods don't really care. Okay? Those were the guys that Socrates reacted against. Do you remember those? Some of you might remember. Can I get a, like a head nod? Okay. Yes. All right. Good, good. All right. And then there was Socrates. <laughs> Socrates. Words have meaning because we have souls and we should want the good and be good while pursuing the good by examining our lives. Yeah. And then his student, Plato, ideas are real and they're behind everything. And then there's his student, Aristotle. It's nice how there's a flow there for a while. Words define things and things are real and held together by a god lowercase g, who is both moved and unmoved, what they call in Latin a prima mobile, or the unmoved mover. And then there's this guy, our older brother, our God, Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, all that's, he starts that, and that's moving parallel and overshadowing a lot of this stuff, which is great, until we get to a guy who didn't really mean to mess things up, Galileo says, so allegedly under his breath when the Pope was telling him that he was going to be under house arrest because he needed to recant because Galileo was watching the moon and he said, oh, the moon's going around us and we're going around the sun just like Copernicus said. And the Pope said, no. Because the Bible says the earth, the pillars, it doesn't move, right? Galileo's like, well, it, it does move because like I, I did the math, but yes, your holiness, you know. And then, uh, and then you get a lot of discoveries and finally Descartes coming out of the 30 years war, he's like, what is real? How do I, how do I know that? Uh, I think therefore I am. That's how I know I am real. That's how I know because I'm having thoughts. Plus there's God and stuff, right? Then there's Locke. And Locke's just trying to figure stuff out. He says, you're born knowing nothing, and you only know what you know through sense and experience, right? Thereby setting educational theory on a path that we still trod regularly. And then you got Hume. He's lovely. Your senses could be wrong. You can't really know the cause of a thing. Past the haggis. <laughs> then you got Kant. Man, and generally any rational being, exists as an end to himself, not merely as a means to be arbitrarily used by this or that will. So you are your own end. It's all up to you. Go out there and do your thing. But be moral. And you can use the Bible to find out what morality is. It's okay. All right? Is this ringing any bells? You guys remembering this stuff? Okay. Then you got Hegel. He's great. He's your thesis versus antithesis leads to synthesis, which becomes the new thesis und so weiter, as they say in German, or, and so on. This is how we grow in understanding and meaning. And... You know, eventually we get to the meaning of, I didn't even go into the all soul thing where God is like this great big soul thing and it's kind of almost, almost uh, Hindu and it's, you know, like in it's what he believed in. But 
But I don't think he knew who the Hindus were, so. Marx, he says, nope, Hegel's wrong. The only valid thesis is dialectical materialism. The proletariat must revolt against the bourgeoisie and do away with religion, the family, and all private property. All the means of production must be in the hands of the state. Capital is the origin of all misery, so we get rid of it. And it's simple, that's all we have to do. Then life will be better. And then we got the guy that we're gonna go over today, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard said, nah. What you need to do is believe in God and then take a leap of faith. Existence is a dynamic tension between belief and suffering. He's fun. In fact, Kierkegaard is the beginning of existentialism. And how many of you have ever heard of existentialism? Okay, good. But could you define it? That's... <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's cool. It's cool if you can't, because they have trouble doing it. Existentialism, what is it? I, I lift it from Sproul and he says, it's a philosophy of existence. And I'm gonna try again. <laughs> no, that's not helpful. And I think he was probably laughing when he wrote that, because yeah. he's got like, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> so, so we have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Galileo, Descartes, and Locke. They're all looking at, so we can kind of break it up, what we've studied and looked over. They're all looking at how we know what we know. Okay, that's, that's their concern. How do you know what you know? I mean, you know it, but how do you know it? Is it through ideas? Is it through words? Is it through some, you know, butterfly landing on your head, angels dancing on the heads of pins. How do you know it, right? And you should thank me for skipping Aquinas. <laughs> Just saying, all right. And then we get Kant, and after Kant's assertion that man exists as an end to himself, because even though God exists, you can't prove his existence using the senses, but you behave as if he exists. Right? So somebody said, go out and measure God, Paulette. You're like, well, has I got the measuring to hold still? No, you can't, right? Did you actually hear God landing? What, is it a deep voice? Is it a high-pitched voice? You know, what, what is it? See, so you can't measure it. Soren Kierkegaard, because he was a Dane, tried to figure out what manner of existence that existence should be. So, you know, you have to behave like he exists. So then we got our Soren Kierkegaard, the melancholy Dane. <laughs> Amy's actually seen that statue, it's in Denmark. Because that's where her people are from. And studying Kierkegaard, I now begin to understand why my life is the way it is. <laughs> so we go to the next slide. So we got Kierkegaard, he's born in 1813, and he doesn't live very long, he dies in 1855. He's born in Denmark. He had a weird childhood. We could go into a lot of it, and a lot of people do, but basically it was not a happy childhood. Um, he had a, his family was, or his dad, messed up big time, lost his first, wife, which was Kierkegaard's mom, and then uh, went hardcore Lutheran, but very strict 
letter of the law, Lutheran, and which is, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of spirit behind it. So Kierkegaard goes to the university, studies theology, literature, and philosophy, and he wanted to be a good Christian, even though he wrote he didn't dare call himself one. That was interesting. So to me, a moral person, a good Christian, that meant more to Kierkegaard than simply attending the state church, which in Denmark is the Lutheran church. So he writes a bunch of stuff, and we only have a sampling here. He wrote Fear and Trembling, The Attack Upon Christendom, and the Concluding Unscientific Postscript, which I was tempted to take just a page of that and throw it up on the screen just to show you how and that's an in, an in translation too. It it's how many of you have ever tried to read it? You got the face. You know what I'm talking about. You're making the face. Yeah. You're kind of like, okay, wait a minute. What? Highlight? What? Wait, nope. Did he just come? No. No, he's got a point, I'm sure. Four pages later, you get like this little clause where you go, aha. I need a break, right? <laughs> but where he leads to is he's the, basically the father of existentialism. And so what he has is he has these, he identified three stages of human existence and what we would call lifestyles, okay? And I'm just saying lifestyles. I'm sure there's probably a better word, but I was trying to think of a word that everybody could grab a hold of and lifestyles. And so stage one is the aesthetic stage. And that's characterized by a pursuit of sensuousness. During this stage, a person doesn't really think about life, isn't very open in their relationships with others, and lacks purpose beyond a basic pursuit of pleasure. To leave this stage, the person has to make an existential decision. So basically, this is kind of what Thoreau talks about when he talks about the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation, right? They're just they're just out there, they're doing their job, they're the guys that live for the weekend, they're the guys that, I don't want to judge them too harshly, but the genius who did the, did you guys see the, somebody showed it to me because I'm a Bills fan. So the Bills are out there having, Bills fans are out there having their tailgate party at the last uh, playoff game and some idiot, they have a portable table and this guy, takes this other guy and he does like some professional wrestling move and he flips the guy on it. How many of you have seen it? He flips the guy onto the table. What they don't, because they're drunk, they don't realize that there's something that's already lit, like there's an actual Bunsen burner thing on the table. So this guy gets flipped onto the table and everybody's standing, you know, 20, 30 people are standing there plus the guy that's filming it. They're like, whoa, and the guy gets up and he turns around, he's got no shirt on, it's like 20 degrees, and he's like, whoa, and his butt's on fire because they flipped him right into the thing that was lit onto the table. That's uh, stage one. <laughs> that's the, the, you know. Yeah, that's, that's and after, and, oh, and the funny thing was, what was really sad is he's rolling in the snow and they couldn't put him out. I don't know what they flipped him into, but his, like, fanny was flaming, you know. And he's screaming, and everybody's laughing. There's half the crowd's laughing, and half the crowd's trying to help him. That's the aesthetic stage, people. So basically, to leave this stage, you have to set your 
back end on fire and make an existential decision. You have to say, is there more to existence than this? Than the next day hangover? Is there more to this than my third divorce because, you know, I can't take care of the needs of my spouse, right? Is there more to this? And Kierkegaard says, yes, as a matter of fact, because I've thought it through, there is. There's stage two. There's the ethical stage. This stage is where the person moves beyond simply pursuing pleasure or existing and starts contemplating morality and living by moral laws. The person begins to realize that the guilt they feel cannot be assuaged simply by being ethical. It might take them a while to get to that. And there are a lot of people that we know nowadays who, if you were gonna put them in one of, say, you say, okay, take a person you know, just pick a person, like somebody you work with or whatever, and see if you can figure out what stage, according to Kierkegaard, their life is in. If you, you don't have to think about it really hard based on the two stages that you've already been exposed to. Because most people are either in stage one, that's the kid that's, that's usually the kid that's fresh out of college, right? And then there's the stage two people who maybe are fresh out of college but they have a degree in, you know, gender studies or something. And they're, they're, they're in stage two because they're, you know, ooh, I need to be a moral person. Yes, sir. Do you know if Kierkegaard allows, like, does he say this is always a progression, or can you have regression? I don't remember if he talks about regression. I would assume that you could until you get to the third stage. You don't regress from the third stage. So you might float back and forth between one and two. But at least the way, the way Kierkegaard presents it, from what I remember having actually read Kierkegaard, it, he makes it sound like it, you, once you get to, he makes it sound like it's, it's stage one, stage two, it's a progression. But I found myself wondering that as I was writing this up, but I also didn't have time to go back and see if I, You mentioned trying to think of someone, and I thought of someone, and I could see them going to one, to two, and back to one. Back yeah, to yeah, and I think you could. I think you could definitely do that. During the transition period. Yeah, yeah, because they're not completely, because they're like on, they're trying to move from one boat to the other, and the boats are kind of going like that, and they're like, whoa, you know. Hey, Brian, in the interest of segue, what's number three? <laughs> we can't see yet okay to get to number three you have to insert a leap of faith you probably heard of that phrase leap of faith yeah you can bet you didn't realize it came from the first existentialist I thought it was Christian but actually Kierkegaard I think was a Christian he just was a really messed up guy Insert leap of faith, stage three. But then aren't we all? That's the religious stage. That's when the person has committed a decisive act and has stepped beyond the rational. So you have to leave logic behind for this, guys. For a passionate love of God, choosing to obey, from a, choosing to obey him from a sense of love instead of duty. So you're not just doing the pharisaical, I'm checking the boxes. I have made a leap of faith. I love God. But now I'm in dynamic tension because... Loving God is not rational. Ugh. I think I'm going to be sick. You know, that kind of thing. So, 
Do you know people like that? And Kierkegaard is considered the father of Christian existentialism. That's what Sproul said. I don't know what Christian existentialism is, except he dropped the name Barth. And I'm not getting into that fight because I know a lot of you are diehard theological people. All right, so that's Kierkegaard. Why do we need Kierkegaard? Because for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And the opposite reaction to Kierkegaard and existentialism is this dude, Nietzsche. He actually said some very cool things. He did. I've got some quotes. Hold on. I've got quotes. He said some really cool things. They're probably not the quotes that you want, because that's just the way my life works. But Nietzsche was born in 1844. He didn't live very long either, because Here's another miserable young European, Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900. He was born in Prussia, uh, studied the classics, philosophy, and theology. He was considered brilliant, but he suffered from accidents. Uh, he had that one thing where he, he was leaping on the horse and he broke his femur or something, I don't know. A weak constitution and disease, we won't talk about the disease that eventually killed him, and eventually dying in an insane asylum where his sister would charge people to come and see the great Nietzsche and make money off of her brother sitting there drooling in his uh, straitjacket. There's even a photograph of that, which is just sad. Yeah, I mean, it's... So... I tell you what, everybody's like, I really like the, uh, the Gilded Age, you know, the, the late 1800s and the early 1900s. I'm like, no, man, there's some cool stuff going on there. He was influenced by and reacted to Hegel. He didn't like Hegel. He didn't think much of Marx. But he liked Charles Darwin, at least as far as he read Darwin. And here's some of the things he actually said. Uh, he said, all seeing is essentially perspective, and so is all knowing. Which is basically, what do we say now? Well, it depends on your point of view. Just, you know, it's, it's not terribly radical. Then you, got the then you get the next one. What then is truth? Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten that this is what they are. So those of you who are clinging on to your truths, uh, guess what? You're holding on to an illusion, but you've forgotten that it's an illusion. And I'm smarter than you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of smartest guy in the room syndrome going on with some of these guys. Uh, how about let us assume that nothing is given as real except our world of desires and passions. Now, what is that? Yeah, let us assume that nothing is given as real except our world of desires and passions. And here's the thing, I wasn't going to tell you to the end, but you do realize that Nietzsche said everything was absurd to begin with, which is how he sort of covers his, his tracks. He's like, hey, well, I said it was absurd, so. It's kind of like John Stewart. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of nihilism out there, isn't there? Yeah. 
Let us assume that nothing is given is real except our world of desires and passions, which puts us, which puts Nietzsche squarely in what stage of Kierkegaard? Stage one. Stage one, right. And then to put it quite generally, the main object of all religions has been to counteract a certain epidemic malaise due to unreleased tension. All you people who believe in religion, whatever the religion is, you're just repressed. And no, he's not quoting Freud. Freud actually comes after, he's writing a little bit after Nietzsche. So he's, that's one, uh, one of the sources had a bunch of these quotes and it said, it's amazing to think that this guy is actually ahead of, because he was brilliant. I mean, he's ahead of some of these people who then later become, you know, stalwarts in our Western canon, right? Oh, Freud, ah, it's all about your mother. All right, to put it quite generally, so that's the one about religion. And then uh, the new conditions will bring about an equalization and mediocritization of man a useful, hardworking herd animal of many uses, and they are also disposed, and it's also disposed in, so, so most of you all are, because of the way you think, you're basically just herd animals. Greg, you're basically a herd animal. You're just a, yeah, you're just a giant cow. Because you go and you do your work, and you keep your head down, and you don't really think about anything, and you live your little sad pedestrian life, but, because most of you are like that, and here's where the evolution part comes in, right? Some of us are going to be exceptional men of most dangerous and fascinating quality. Hmm. Yes. Some, yeah, well, for every, if you're prey, then there has to be a what? There has to be a predator. But he doesn't really characterize that he talks about, this gave rise to Nietzsche's assertion that there is a herd morality and a master morality. And this led to the ascendancy of religion and the weak at the expense of the exceptional and the barbaric. See, the herd keeps the barbarians down because there's more of the herd, right? There's more of you people than there are of the exceptional people. Like Nietzsche, right? Exceptional. <laughs> who can just do whatever they want because they are not bound by your herd mentality. How dare you? Reminds me of animal they just farm. pick you off on the purpose. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, they pick you off. Either that or they can persuade you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do because you're transfixed by their superiority, by the fact that they're free. <laughs> What? There's no freedom in that viewpoint. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, hey. I'm, hey, this is where he's coming from. Yes, sir. Brian, I'm just curious, really. What, what makes them brilliant? Because they're not like other people. Because they, because they see, because they see, well, okay, yeah. Yeah, but, but Freud's not around yet. Freud's not doing that yet, okay. Yeah, stop it, all right. The way, this is his uh, Ubermensch, Uber right? Yeah. This is his whole that. And it's interesting, because the way it get, got twisted by the guy with the 
mustache <laughs> uh, isn't really like so many things they did. They can't even plagiarize correctly, right? Basically, what Nietzsche is getting at is that there are some of you, if I th think about it, use stages, Kierkegaard's stages as an analogical basis, okay? So most people in Nietzsche's, if Nietzsche had a progression, but he doesn't say that it is a progression, but if he had a progression, all right, it'd be most of us are herd animals. And every once in a while, one of us has like an epiphany, maybe even from the infancy or early childhood, where they realize that the rest of us are messed up, that we're following rules that we don't really need to follow, and we're not really living to power, right? This is where he gets this idea of the will to power, the difference between the ubermensch and you is that the ubermensch finally figures out that he has power and all he has to do is exercise his will to make it happen. And in a way, it puts us right back, thousands of years back to the sophists, where they get away with what they get away with because they use words to just recklessly get what they want. And of course, in Greece, it's words, and in Nietzsche, it's just, I refuse to live by the rules anymore. I'm not living by your rules. You say don't drink anise, anise, or no, absinthe? No, what's this stuff, the green stuff? Absinthe, yeah, don't drink that. Okay, here's a gallon, boom, ha, I'll show you. It's kind of like a toddler reaction, you know? Don't do that. Don't you eat all those cookies and you hear the crack of the cookie jar because he takes the cookie jar and he smacks them open and he's cookie monster on them, right? And you see where I got him. Wrapped up in a straitjacket, drooling, being exploited by his sister. So all his self-determination wasn't worth it? What? Yeah, because it's absurd. Well, it's self serving well, like, yeah, yes. And even people like that don't want everybody to be like that because no. herd, herd mentality people are the ones that keep the wheels on. Right. Okay. So you yeah. don't really think that this is... It's funny. The, everybody yeah, the Obermensch decides that he wants to go to Vienna from Paris, but he relies on the herd to get him to make sure the train runs so that he can get to Vienna on time, right? So it isn't some, really, it isn't something he wants anybody to aspire to. No, 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 no. It's just something he wants the Lord over. It's, it's almost like he read too much and he thought too much and he just like, pardon the expression, he just kind of barfed all this stuff out. Yeah. I mean, he so just. Honestly, uh, but, the, the, but the weird thing is, you read it, I, I was so absorbed in it yesterday, I was going over this again. I was in the library and I screamed because I was reading and he had me drawn in so much that a student of mine who had been waving at me from across the library came across and she said, well, I'll just go up behind him and I'll touch him on the shoulder. I did not hear her come. She tapped me on the shoulder. She said, sir, I went, and I threw the book up in the air. It was, 
I didn't realize how much he had, how absorbed I was in what he was saying. It's, it's, it's intriguing. I'm not saying it's right or anything, but, but, it, but it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a unique kind of philosophy. Yes. Was he remaking the golden rule? Or he who actually his golden rule would be he who has the will doesn't have to obey the rules. <coughs> but that self-determination would, would drive you crazy because you're not going to be able to sustain that. Well, I mean, you know, did you really think about what we've been looking at? I love how Nietzsche gets Nietzsche always gets this reaction every time I've taught a class that he was in. But look, but it's great because look at look at where look at, compare him to some of the other philosophers that we've talked about. Do you see how big a break he is with the tradition? It's not really an examined life. No, no, it's not really an examined life. He is he is. It's kind of interesting. He dies in 1900 because he is the switch. Like, you know how tracks have the, train tracks have the thing and somebody pushes the lever and all of a sudden the train is going this way and then it moves off to a, to a siding or whatever it's called, right? He's that giant switch. Kant's like the, Kant laid the track. Kierkegaard said, you know, I think we could probably put a switch there. <laughs> but I don't know. I gotta wipe my thumb and be a melancholy Dane and die of probably ulcers or whatever. And then, and then Nietzsche goes, "Hey, let's build a switch!" Woohoo! Boom! And then he flips the switch, and off goes the train. Yeah. Well. Let's. Well, let's, let's, let me give you some more quotes from him, okay? Here's his big one. I regard Christianity as the most fatal and seductive lie that has ever yet existed, as the greatest and most impious lie. And then, of course, no. Nietzsche frequently declared that any attempt at systematic philosophy was absurd. And this is where we're going to leave him because we have to move on. What? How would he define the word pious? I, I mean, I, I just think it's funny that he even uses that word. Yeah. Peel it back, man. Keep going. You're doing great. Therefore, we're going to acknowledge that he said what he said and think about all the damage he did after his short life. One thing, he seems to be the first person in this series Totally said, I have no obligation to God or the concept of God or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to truly do my own thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what the serpent said to Eve in the garden, you'll be your own thing. Or, you know, that famous band, you can go your own way. <laughs> go your own way. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, wait. So, so you're pointing at Tim because Tim was going to say something. Yes. Okay. I think all these guys are incredibly brilliant. Mm -hmm. And they use their brilliance to examine the world around them and draw conclusions that were totally separate from biblical principles and a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it just shows, and when you look at the mess that every one of them led to, and as far as I know, every one of them lived a miserable life. Um, it, 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 it's, it's sad because you think of if they would have thought and worked within the biblical framework, what they could have developed. I mean, you know, I mean, Nietzsche mastered all the classical languages before he was 20. Mastered them. Mastered Greek. Mastered Latin. Mastered Hebrew. Like, when he talks about the Bible, he actually knows what he's talking about. He has read the stuff. Which is just sad. And, of course, for every Nietzsche, there's this. So we're going back to existentialism. And we're talking about post-World War I. And I thought there was no better way to kind of get you into existentialism than to throw the lyrics of a very famous song up on the board just so that you could appreciate it. The question, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. I'm just a poor boy. I need no sympathy because I'm easy come, easy go. A little high, a little low. And any way the wind blows doesn't really matter to me. And then we get to the real existential nexus. Mama just killed a man. Put a gun against his head, pulled my trigger, now he's dead. Mama. Life had just begun, but now I've gone and thrown it all away. Mama, ooh. Yeah, I don't, I think that's a poetic conceit. Didn't mean to make you cry. A little bit of Shakespeare there. I'm not back again, if I'm not back again this time tomorrow, carry on, carry on. As if, what? Nothing really matters. And then of course it ends, nothing really matters, anyone can see. Nothing really matters, nothing really matters to me. Anyway, the wind blows. And this is the select lyrics from the Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Why? Because I was trying to get my students to realize that existentialism was everywhere because they were really, they, re, they would read The Stranger by Albert Camus, Camus and they would get very angry, which I thought was great. They would get very, not angry like, raging, dribbling, but like frustrated, like, this is stupid. What? And you, what, but what about his mom? But did that, that, that's murder. What is, why does he not care? Why is he afraid? I mean, and then I would play the song for him and make him write an essay about it, and it would just go, Poof. they would go, ah, So we only could pick one existentialist, so we picked this guy. The handsome devil, bless his heart. This is Jean-Paul, I, I don't care, I'm not French, Sartre, right? I know, French is like Sartre. I have a snail stuck to the end of my nose. Okay, all right. What's the deal with him? Well, he's born in France. He studied in both Paris and Germany before World War II. He was influenced by Marxism, though he never formally joined the Communist Party, but he did defend Stalin's purges. So, swell guy, right? Swell guy, yeah. But wait, 
there's some contradiction here because he becomes a member of the French resistance and is imprisoned by the Germans for what he did against the Germans during World War II. So, and unlike a lot of people imprisoned by the Germans, he actually survived. And he was friends with Albert Camus, the guy that wrote The Stranger, which is where we get so many of the classic late 70s and 80s songs. Um, the Stranger. The titles of some of his works, very encouraging, makes you want to go out and read them. Nausea, The Flies, No Exit, and then of course the one that lifts everybody up, Being and Nothingness. All right. Key beliefs, we can go over him real quick. Existence precedes essence. That's for human beings. You exist before you have something to exist for. Okay. For manufactured things like a chair, essence precedes existence. It's best to discuss it from the chair. The chair exists in the man's mind or the manufacturer's mind before he builds the chair. And he has a purpose. What? Oh, okay. Yeah, here we go. Ideas again, right? Ooh. Is essence precedes existence. And then, of course, there's this quote from the flies, which I thought kind of sums it up. Oh, and then there's my great quote at the bottom. Uh, there was nothing left in heaven, no right or wrong, nor anyone to give me orders, for I am a man, and every man must find out his own way. That's from the flies, and then... And then in No Exit, which is another play, he says, hell is other people. But of course, by the time he wrote those, he had paparazzi following him around, so maybe hell was other people, you know, just trying to get a baguette and people following him. He, you know, for a guy, for a philosopher, he actually lived pretty, 90, 1905 to 1980, I mean, he didn't, I guess because he was French, you know, he, found a way around to beat the odds. I find it interesting that he was still alive when I was forced to read some of that existentialist stuff in school. And I didn't know that he was still around. All right, so where does that bring us? Well, we're gonna end with where we started, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So basically what, if we learn from this? Stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Well, without Jesus, you're going to go off into, it's like Tim said, you're going to go off in the weeds really fast. And it's going to be rough. It's like another famous song, if you're going to be dumb, it better be tough. And this stuff, hopefully, one of the goals that I had was by forcing us to look at some of these, well, not forcing us, because you you volunteered for this, but by looking at some of these philosophies and like what did they actually, you know, we may have heard of existentialism, we may have heard of nihilism with Nietzsche, we may have heard of the Kantian 
paradox or what have you, Hegel's uh, progression, Marxism, right? These are terms that people throw around, but very few, oftentimes we hear them and we don't go into them. We don't go, well, what does that actually mean? What did they actually say, right? And this was just a very feeble 35-minute attempt, 40-minute attempt, four times in a row to run us through it very quickly and to challenge us that there are a lot of competing worldviews out there and a lot of uh, people that we know and love and care about that we interact with on a daily basis have taken a little bit of this one, a little bit of that one, like it's a buffet and they've sort of made their plate and that will account for a lot of inconsistencies in their life because they don't have Christ as their Logos. So. All right, well, let me pray and, and get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for the time that we have to do this. I appreciate uh, all the help that uh, Tim has been to get this stuff set up properly um, and for the opportunity that uh, I was afforded to be able to do this. And Lord, I pray that as we go forth from this place today uh, after this four-week excursion into worldviews that we would, um, as we spend time in the Word, as we live our lives, that we would take time to examine ourselves and to just be careful that we don't get taken captive and by vain philosophies and also that we can recognize when some of the people that we work with or or in our families have been captivated by these things and to be able to have better insight as to how to speak to them and how to draw them closer to Christ because we have a better idea of what they're thinking and where their minds are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.